This morning I invite your attention to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And as you're turning there, I invite you to stand with me, if you will, in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Let's stand together. Joshua chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean? Then you will say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua according to the number of tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priest were who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they are there for, to this day. For the priests who carried the Ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hurried and crossed. And when all the people had finished crossing, the Ark of the Lord and the priests crossed before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over into battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them, about 40,000 equipped for war, crossed for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all of Israel so that they revered him just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. Let's pray together. Father, would you give to us today understanding an application to these words which you have preserved for us and we have read here this day. We pray it in Jesus' name for our good and for your glory. And all of God's people together said, Amen. You may be seated. May God add blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the understanding of his word. In Joshua chapter 4, the people of God commemorated a miraculous crossing into the promised land. They crossed the Jordan River, and that was what was happening in this text. That's the essence of this text. And for us today, what it means is this, that we as Christians should intentionally commemorate the activity of God in our lives. Why? Because future generations need to know about what God has done in our lives. They need to hear about His incredible works. In fact, if we carried a little farther into this text, you don't have to turn there, but verse 21 and 22 it says again, in the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Look at that again or listen to that again. When your children ask, 
Now, how many of you are parents? How many of you have children? How many of you have children that like to ask questions? Or at one point in time in their life, they love to ask questions. Why, Mama? Why, Daddy? What's this, Mama? What's that, Daddy? How? Why? Where? I mean, just constant barrage of questions. That's in the hearts of children, to be inquisitive and to ask questions. I ran across a list of questions that had been asked by kids to their Sunday school teachers. Here's just a few of them. Uh, a little boy asked, a little seven-year-old boy asked his Sunday school teacher, when Jesus walked on water, did he wear his life jacket? Here was a six-year-old girl. They're a little faster on the uptake. And so this six-year-old girl asked her Sunday school teacher, what did Noah do with the woodpeckers? Some of you will mill that over as you go home and think through it. Another little boy asking about the lesson on Noah asked if Noah's wife was named Joan. And the teacher said, what do you mean? And he said, I thought Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. Another little boy asked his Sunday school teacher, why didn't Mary and Joseph simply call ahead and make reservations in Bethlehem? Here was one that was even younger than that. I don't have the age, but a little boy asked his mom and Sunday school teacher subsequently, did baby Jesus wear diapers or pull-ups? Here's one that's pretty appropriate to where we are this weekend with all of the weather events that have gone on. A little girl asked her teacher, when the disciples were in the midst of the storm, did they watch the Weather Channel? <laughs> Kids ask lots of questions. They're inquisitive. And here Joshua sets up a memorial, a, 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 a monument, if you will, right on the edge of the Jordan River to commemorate what had happened. Now, you know the story. The story is very clear to us. It's interesting to think about. If you and I were to travel to the Holy Land, rocks are everywhere. It's not hard to find rocks in the Holy Land. There are massive boulders in the Holy Land. There are smaller stones throughout the Holy Land, just laden all throughout the fields, from the Negev in the south to the, the beautiful green fervent fields that you would see in the north. You'll find stones. There are pebbles that line the rivers, that line the banks of the rivers. There, there are stones. And in fact, it's not very hard if you go too far into and around the Holy Land to find stones much like these that are piled up. They look like they have some order to them because memorializing things was a common thing. And it's not uncommon to us. We have markers in our life that memorialize things. We, we take pictures and that picture we frame and we say that's a memorial to that event. Maybe a wedding picture or maybe the pictures of a vacation. We memorialize things. It's not uh, unlike us that they would do this but as we think about these rocks here in Joshua chapter 4 let's set the stage for a moment they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years because of disobedience they were not earlier allowed to enter into the promised land they had been given this promise long centuries ago and now they cross over the Jordan, and it's a miraculous crossing. There's a miracle that takes place for the people of God to leave Egypt. God parted the Red Sea for Moses, and here God parts the Jordan River for Joshua. We see a unique thing as God is doing these miracles, because both miracles happen so that each generation 
would know the miraculous power of God, that the Lord was with them in their time. Think about it. If you were in that generation leaving the hand of Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt and walking on dry ground as God parted the waters of the Red Sea, you would say, our God is powerful. And now a generation later, if you walked on dry ground, you saw the waters piled up on the other side of the Ark of the Covenant, you would walk on dry ground and you would say, our God is powerful. And He has come through in this promise. He's allowed us to enter into the promised land. The Lord was with both of them in their time. The Red Sea miracle met the need of the older generation. The Jordan River miracle met the need of the younger generation. And listen, the same God performs both miracles. God was over both. He's over the generations. Now, last week we studied Joshua 3, and in that we noted that the river was at flood stage. It was a mile wide, perhaps. It was far too swift and too deep for millions of Jews and all of their livestock to cross over. There was no possible way without the hand of God. And God instructed Joshua exactly what they were to do. Do you remember? He told them, the priest, carry the ark on your shoulders and move forward and stay ahead of the people. Give distance so that everybody can see the ark. And there was a reverence and a sense of holiness and awe that our God is on the move. And they were ready themselves and moved when they saw the ark move. And as soon as the priest stepped foot in the river, the waters dammed up. The waters piled up on one side. They stopped. The flow of the river, this mighty river at flood stage, is stopped. And the people crossed over on dry ground. And now God is telling Joshua to tell the people to go back, pick up stones. And so the men carry these stones on their shoulders and they carry them there to Gilgal where they would camp out and they would set up this wonderful, wonderful memorial. This place called Gilgal where they would camp that night and they carried the stones out and the moments that the the moment the priest stepped back out of the river, they stepped onto the shore, the river began to flow again and the people had crossed over. When the men got to Gilgal, Joshua built this monument. He took these 12 stones, one from each tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel, and built this memorial. Now you say, that's an amazing story, Pastor, but what does that have to do with us? Well, I'm glad you asked this morning because there's unbelievable application for us right here where we sit. There's a lesson for us. The first thing I want you to see is this very, very clearly. We have a sacred responsibility to take the truth of God and see that it is passed down to the next generation. We have a sacred responsibility. It's more than just a nice thing to do to teach your children the things of God. It is far more than just a, 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 an activity that you ought to include. It's far more than moral instruction. It's far more than teaching them how to tie their shoes or teaching them how to ride a bike or teaching them other things that you might teach your children. No, you have a sacred responsibility before God to teach your children and your grandchildren and coming generations the activity of God, the truth of God in your life. You see, the people knew the stories of God. They knew the promise to Abraham. They knew the parting of the Red Sea. Even though these were a new generation that had died out in the wilderness and this new one had been birthed up, they knew the stories of how God had faithfully done works before. 
Someone once said that the Christian movement is always one generation from extinction. And any given church is one generation away from closing its doors forever. If you think about that, that ought to be for us a stark reminder that all passing generations must carry this sacred responsibility with earnest seriousness. They ought to carry it forward to teach and to train and to instruct and to remember. In fact, that's the word of the day is remember, remember, remember. Say that word with me. Remember, over 200 times in Scripture, the word remember, and we see it all throughout the Scripture that God remembered His covenant and the people forgot, that God remembered the cries of His people as He heard them. God knew their plight, and God worked in their lives. He remembers, but we often forget. And how easy for us it is to forget about things that God has done, miraculous things, supernatural things. And when we forget them and walk away from them, we are moving toward a generation behind us missing out. Listen to the words of Scripture, Psalm 102, 18. You may want to jot just that reference down. Let this be written for a future generation that a a people not yet created may praise the Lord. You see, the psalmist is saying, I want to write down, God, what you're doing in my life now so that people that have not even been born yet will praise you because you're worthy of their praise. We ought to live our lives in such a way that everything we do is so just consumed with the idea that Christ is worthy of all of our praise. I want everyone to join the choir. Amen, Brother Wes? Amen. Amen, choir? I want everyone to join the choir, not just this choir, but the choir of those that are redeemed that would say, Jesus is worthy of all that I have. All I have is Christ. You see, Jesus not getting the praise of people who have not yet come to him is for me a responsibility that I need to go and share so that they might join in the chorus. Because he's worthy of all of it. And the psalmist in Psalm 102 said it this way. I'm praying that the things that that you are putting in my heart and in my life will be written down so that people that have not even yet been born one day will praise you. Isn't that good? Let me give you another one. Psalm 71, 18. Jot this one down. This is appropriate for many of us today. Even when I am old and gray, I'm there. I told the Carrie Wow students last night that I have two daughters in college, and before they went to college, I had hair. And then I've got a third daughter. Because I have three daughters, now what little hair I have left is turning gray. It's turning loose and turning gray. Well, the psalmist understood this. He said, even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, until I declare your power to the next generation. I love that. I love that. One day, Joshua knew that that generations would look to their parents and say, what do these stones mean? They didn't ask the question. He didn't presuppose they would say, why are these stones here? No, it's deeper than that. What do they mean? What is the real significance of these stones? You see, every generation needs its own story. And he said, when they ask, you tell them God did a miracle. God dried up the river. God allowed us to cross. And as soon as we crossed, God let the river flow again. And we want everyone to know that our God is the God. We want everyone to know that God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of the Bible is God alone. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. I am God. 
Why would we even call God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You see how beautifully linked this is? He is known as the God of Abraham because the stories of Abraham's faith and faithfulness in relationship to his God link him to a greater story. How cool would it be 50 years from now if God were known as the God of, and you just put your name in like that. Oh, that we would walk with God so intimately and so obediently that in a thousand years from now, people would say, we want to follow the God of Hardy's dreams. Amen? That was a great place for you to join in the chorus. That, that God would work in our midst, that we would be what we have called uh, ourselves to be, to account, to say we want to be a catalyst for spiritual awakening here in the Pine Belt. We want to be a hub of disciple making here in the Pine Belt. Oh, that God would rend the heavens and He would visit us in manifest visitation, that He would come and His presence would be real here in our lives, in our homes, in our schools, in our church. And that years from now, generations would look back and they would say, oh, that we would serve the God of the pine belt, the God who stirred that city. I have a dear friend who is a pastor. He was at a church in South Haven, Mississippi. Back in the 90s, there was an incredible revival. I, I wish I had time to, to tell all of it. Uh, the, the pastor that was there then has just written it in book form. It's about to come out, and I'm excited about it. God did amazing things through the course of about 15 weeks of absolute revival. God turned that city upside down. The, 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 the church raised funds together. And one of the only abortion clinics in the state of Mississippi was there in South Haven. And they bought the building and turned it into a church. God did amazing things. And in the midst of that, in a Sunday school class, my friend who is a pastor, his wife was diagnosed with a degenerative eye disease. It was very, very, very frightening. They had two young children. And they began to pray as a Sunday school class. They began to pray as their small group. And they just, for whatever reason, had a peace about asking God to heal her. Sometimes we kind of wishfully think that God would do something. But they just had this sense, God wants to do something here. And God healed her eyesight. They prayed over her. And the, the doctor who was in that church, the ophthalmologist, came to her two weeks later with the results and said, there is no sign of disease. There's no evidence of anything that would preclude. And he said, I have to tell you, I didn't give you the full story from the beginning. You would have lost your sight completely. Now, let me fast forward. My friend, his name is Al, was in the car after a Wednesday night service, and the youth minister had shared. His kids are now in the youth group. And his daughter was just yakking about everything that had happened that night. She said, let me tell you the story that we heard tonight. We heard a story from our youth minister about a lady from our church that was healed. Her eyesight was restored. My friend Al pulled his car over to the side of the road and began to weep. He said, sweetie, that lady is your mom. And he said, oh, we, we get so wrapped up at times in living our Christian lives that we don't memorialize what God has done. And I want to make sure that we're cautious here. We don't need to run forward looking back. If you think the best days of the life of this church and the best days in your life as a Christian are behind you, then you're going to run smack into trouble because the greatest days are ahead. We have a glorious future promised to us. Jesus has an inheritance kept for us in heaven. But I believe here on this earth that God has great things for this church in these coming days. 
Now, I want us to look back and never forget what God did. 1907, 15 people that wanted to have a Sunday school closer to their home for their children, down close to Fifth Avenue, began to meet in a home. 1907. And not long after that, God began to save people and stir in their hearts, and all of a sudden, they formed a church. And Fifth Avenue Baptist Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, came to be a thing. And then that church grew and expanded and developed and built buildings and sent missionaries and called pastors. And in the 1950s, they felt the leadership of God to move from there to here. And they bought this property and began to build. And it became Temple Baptist Church. And there was a glorious missionary past here in this place. Some of the most gifted preachers that have ever stepped foot in a pulpit or opened a Bible have preached in this very pulpit. I'm humbled to ever stand here. But God did something amazing during that time, and the church grew. And see, I want you to see this, especially younger generations, kids that are here. These buildings weren't always here. There were faithful people who listened to God and sacrificially gave, and they put these things in place because they knew God was among them and God was working with them. And if you and I lose sight of the past, we're, we're doomed to repeat history. Joshua wanted to make sure you need to know God helped us cross here. God led members of this church and the leadership to plant a church westward as things expanded west. And then God uh, determined in our hearts and our lives sometime even before I got here that we needed to continue to have a gospel witness on the east side of Hattiesburg. And I'm so thankful that he did because I believe God is doing something in this church and in this city that we've not seen before. And I'm praying for revival. And I don't know about you, but I sense the stirrings of revival. I'm seeing men who are waking up to their responsibility to be disciple makers. I'm seeing college students who are hungry for the Word of God. I'm seeing children that are learning the Word of God. I'm seeing a youth group that are passionate about sharing their faith with their friends. And all of this comes directly out of this amazing story. I think, for us, Joshua had two things in mind. Very quickly, let's walk through these. Number one, these stones were a teaching tool. A teaching tool for them and for us. You see, it was a teaching tool for future generations. He knew that children would look at that pile of stones and say, what is this all about? And their fathers would very simply say, God worked a miracle. A teaching tool for them and for us. What is it to teach them? Three things very quickly. Number one, God's faithful activity. God's faithful activity. God had worked in their hearts and lives, and He carried them through just as He had promised. Number two, it is something that would teach them this, God's power and might. Only God could stop up the river. Only God could lead them across. Only God could let them walk on dry ground. Only God. And so Joshua wanted to say to those parents, to those dads especially, There's coming a day that your children will ask, and when they ask, what do these stones mean? You better point them straight to Jehovah God. You point them to the power of the one who made this possible. You point to the one who gave this moment significance. And it didn't start when we stepped foot in the water and that dammed up. It didn't start when we crossed and the waters finished by. No, it started in the heart of God long ago when he promised he would give a people a land. The power and might of God. His miracle. His moving, His working, His saving. And three, the need to fear and follow God. The need to fear and follow God. 
I think it's interesting. He said twice here when the children ask their fathers. He says that, parents, it's your responsibility to pass along spiritual formation. But parents in general and fathers in particular, dads, you better wake up and listen up. You have an obligation to be the man who teaches your children the Word of God, who teaches your grandchildren the Word of God. And my prayer is that we would develop a core of men who would be passionate about doing just that. Now, why would he need a teaching tool? Why would he memorialize this? I think very simply, you've already said the positive word, remember. The other word is forget. Everybody say, we forget. Sometimes we forget. Have you ever forgotten anything? Some are going, absolutely. Now, some of you said, now what did you ask? I'm not sure, I forgot the question. You've probably heard the story of the three sisters. They were in their 90s, 92, 93, 94. The 94-year-old is upstairs. She's about to put her feet in the bathtub, and she stops and says, Now, wait, was I getting in the tub or out of the tub? And she yells to her sister and says, Hey, was I getting in the tub or out of the tub? And her sister laughed at her at the bottom of the stairs or in the middle of the stairs and chuckled and said, Wait a minute, was I going up the stairs or down the stairs? And so she yelled to her sister who was sitting downstairs, Was I going up the stairs or down the stairs? And her sister laughed at her and said, oh, knock on wood, I hope I am never as bad as my sisters. Now, was that the front door or the back door? We forget. We forget. But I want you to see this. It was not only a teaching tool for the people of God, it was a testimony to the watching world. When we memorialize those things, it's a testimony to the watching world. I held up my stone earlier. Every time I see this stone, I think of Amy. You say, that's weird. Well, let me tell you the story. You see, there's a story behind the stone. You say, what does this mean? I lived in North Idaho, a town called Coeur d'Alene. We planted a church there. And while we were planting the church there, God had afforded us the opportunity to purchase a bill or to lease a building. And we were renovating it. And so we were in and out of a, a building supply place not far. And Amy worked at the cash register. And she saw us three or four times in and out of that place. Now, this is a very unchurched city. It's a very underchurched place. Not many Christians there. Not much Christian influence there. And, and Amy looked at me and she said, you guys must be doing some serious project. We were buying paint and sheetrock and all kinds of other materials. And she said, what are you guys doing? And uh, I said, well, I'm a pastor and we're building a church. We're planting a church and building the building. We're renovating. And she said, well, cool. What kind of church is that? I said, well, it's a Christian church. We're Baptist. And she said, wow, does that mean like you bring your own stones? And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, everything I know about Christians is that they judge people. So if I come to your church, do I bring my own stone to throw at people? And it was like I had been hitting the heart with a boulder. And I left that place and I went up a Canfield Mountain. It's a mountain right there on the edge of town. And I went and I found this stone and I put it on my desk and I keep it in my study and have now for about 10, 12 years as a reminder that a watching world often sees what we're against and have no idea what we're for. And Jesus said we would be known by our love, not by our judgment, not by our hatred, not by our bigotry, not by our selfishness. 
not by any other thing that we would be known by our love. And so this is a marker for me. Oh, there are others. If you traveled through my study, you would see all kinds of things. And I can take you back to places. I could say this stone represents Amy. And I've got a stone from Glacier National Park. We went through one of the most difficult personal things we'd ever gone through. In the wake of a miscarriage, some friends of ours gave us the key to their RV. 